Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of the Pre-Raphaelite Podcast by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. My name is Sherry, and today I'm joined by Gail Seymour, who's a professor of art history and associate dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at the University of Central Arkansas. Thank you, Gail, for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to this conversation. Definitely. So we were talking earlier about you starting your Solomon studies on Simeon Solomon in 1980s when few were interested in the artists. Tell us about what you were finding during that time. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I kind of rewind my tape to think, you know, how, how did all of this happen? And I was, a, shall we say, an innocent graduate student at the University of Santa Bar- University of California, Santa Barbara, um, working on a master's degree. I happened to be in a, a seminar with Dr. Henri Dora about French symbolist painting, and I needed a topic for a paper. And he sort of said to me, well, why don't you take a look at Simeon Solomon? And I said, well, who's that? And he said, I don't know. Uh, he said, and this is a quote, I run across his name every so often, and it might be interesting. So there's the first thing. <laughs> there's the first thing to your listeners when your professor says it might be interesting. It might lead to an entire career. It might lead to something quite extraordinary, and it might be a good thing to listen to them. <laughs> so, so, so what I discovered, and this was again probably about 1981, was that Solomon's studies was a wide open subject. Um, that really no one had attempted to assemble a catalog of the work, gather letters, primary sources. And of course, we were in the pre-internet days of research. And so where do you even begin, you know, this sort of proverbial needle in a haystack? The few things that did exist, though, were intriguing. And the most important study on Solomon at the time was an article published by Lionel Lamborn in 1968. So that they were really <laughs> back in time there. And this was published in the Transactions of the Jewish Historical Society. And so it was just one of those things where I thought, this is really interesting, and I really want to know more. And, you know, like I say, I, I did the best I could at my university library, looking through auction catalogs, exhibition catalogs, but still it was really pretty limited what I could come up with. So what I ended up doing after I finished that master's thesis on Solomon was to continue my research uh, for a PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And so I was lucky to um, funding to go to London for a year to do the primary research. And um, my first order of business was to seek out Lionel Lamborn, who was the keeper of prints and drawings at the Victorian Albert Museum. And he was just amazing. He completely opened up his research archive to me and really supported my work up until his death in 2010. Wow. And you know, this is the thing that I, I love about research in Britain, <laughs> um, maybe more than in America, and that is everyone was so generous with me and interested in my interest in Solomon. And, you know, I am so grateful for all of those people. And I really cherish all of the memories I have of doing research in London and around Britain at the time. So if you're wondering, again, if any of your listeners are people who wonder about the times before the internet, (laughs) it was 
it was really a challenge. So what I did, the first thing I do, I, I try to be sort of systematic in my approach to things. I purchased a museum guide to all the museums in Britain. I sat down and hand wrote letters to every museum asking if they had any Simeon Solomons. And it was kind of weird. They all did. They all had like one or two that had been given to them sometime in the 50s, pretty much. So that's how this sort of process began to sort of collect a catalog, collect these images. I also spent a lot of time going to libraries and archives looking for letters. Again, trying to find Solomon's words, how he thought about his art, how people reacted to him. And again, this was in the days of no copy machines in Britain, literally. And so you just simply had to sit there and handwrite everything. Um, the other fun memory some folks might have is the old newspaper library in London, which was at Collindale. This was the last, almost the last stop on the Northern Line on the Edgware branch, when you really had to want it to go out to <laughs> Collindale. And of course, nothing was digitized. And I understand Collindale, I think it closed in 2013. And it's a whole different ballpark. You can really get that kind of information pretty easily. But, you know, if you're looking for exhibition reviews of the artist in his own time, that was the place. And it was always fun. They would bring you the real newspaper and you could actually look at it. It was very Amazing. exciting. So, so I know it was really fun. And, and so today, though, actually since 2000, the Simeon Solomon Research Archive is all online now. And some people who are interested in Solomon will know what a fantastic resource it is. It was created by my colleagues, Dr. Roberta Ferrari and Dr. Carolyn Conroy. And it's all free of charge. And it's just right there. Everything that's ever been published about Solomon or even vaguely related to Solomon is there. Images are there. Primary sources are there. So, you know, so it was, you know, I, I, I think, well, how, you know, how, how did I get all of those things accomplished? How, how, you know, how was I able to pull really the first sort of catalog of the artist's work? And I'll just sort of continue, if you'll allow me, one other or two other things that really were helpful. One are the dealers in London and the auction houses who just, I, again, I don't know why, they really, really helped me and opened up all of their resources to me. And, you know, dealers like Peter and Renata uh, Nahum, Jeremy Moss, Christopher Wood, uh, Julian Hartnell, all of those guys were amazingly generous. And I would go visit them and they had vast knowledge of Solomon, whose work was still really going through the sale rooms and, you know, really wasn't in the museums yet. And so, you know, that also led to other things. I was at Christopher Wood's gallery one day and just talking to him, he happened to answer the phone and his eyes got big and he looked at me and he said, I think you'd like to speak with this lady. And it was Pam Solomon. And Pam Solomon oh, wow. is a collateral descendant of the artist. She's Simeon's cousin, three times removed. <laughs> um, and so that led to a lifelong friendship. Pam Solomon and I are friends and we've traveled We've done all kinds of things together and we have children who are the same age. And, you know, it's just it's just one of those delightful results of real research where you really get to meet some extraordinary people. So through Pam, I was able to meet all kinds of collateral descendants. And again, those individuals really took me into their families 
And, you know, you really learn a lot about an artist when you can sort of see these descendants. And so many of them, and so interesting, so many of them are artists or um, in the arts. Many of them are also doctors. It's it's kind of interesting how the Solomon family um, is, is very much a, a group that, you know, enjoys and lives an artistic life. That is amazing, too, because I've heard that about trying to remember what artist it was. And they were talking about like the descendants. There's a, at least half of them that are in the arts. Yes. And people always say, oh, it's in the blood. It's in the blood. But it really makes you wonder, you know, like this predisposition towards the arts or an art related field. You know, but, Solomon himself was in a, a, a the youngest child of eight and two of his siblings were artists. So, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting to see how it just is something that certain families seem to, you know, seem to gravitate toward. Right. Now, I, I did research in the 80s and 90s, yeah. not to the extent you did, middle school, high school. But yes, definitely researching during that time. I mean, I think back to it and I'm like, wow, you know, the tools I didn't have available. And then I look at what students have available today and having recently graduated myself, even though when I was in my graduate program, you know, our big uh, problem was COVID and the lockdown. And I'm thinking we were still so much more fortunate because at least I still could access archives without having to travel even if the archive was closed, so much is available online. Like you mentioned, the Solomon, pa- you know, page about Solomon. I still had juicy sources yeah. available to me. I just didn't get that people contact, which I think that brings a whole nother layer to your research is when you get to talk directly to people and pick their brains about it. And then, you know, they can send you in different directions or, mm-hmm. you know introduce you to other people. Right. There there were times when branches of the family hadn't talked to each other for years. In some in one case there was 50 years when this one family member hadn't talked to another. And because I needed to, you know, talk to these people, they met each other and talked to each other. And it was really powerful. They were these two older people. They sat on a couch and it was like they were kids again and talking to each other and trying to sort of catch up over the years, you know, it was, it was really, really a, a beautiful thing. There were so many times when I would go visit a family member and knock on the door and the person answering the door would look exactly like Simeon Solomon. Oh, and amazing. Like, <laughs> you know, it was amazing. It was just, you know, it was really it's like it really- Simeon in the flesh, yeah. You know, Simeon but- lives, you know, here he is. So, yeah, so that was pretty fun. So I know you mentioned that you got to work with the Solomon family because Simeon was a bit different from other pre-Raphaelites because of his religion. Is the family still very religious and follow their Jewish heritage or are they, have they become more secular like other families or? Yeah, that, that's a really, really, really good question. I remember talking to Pam Solomon's father, Harry Solomon, who was a character. I asked him if he could sort of assess the orthodoxy of, of Simeon's family, Michael Solomon, his father, and, and the Simeon Solomon family. 
And Harry, I think he was smoking a cigar and he looked at me and says, well, let me put it this way. I think old Michael Solomon would have gotten up on a Saturday morning, had a full English breakfast, including bacon, and gone to the synagogue. And so, you know, I think that really does sort of summarize at least Solomon and his family. I think there was a, a, a love of Jewish traditions, of the Jewish holidays and stories, and yet there were there were advantages to assimilation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there there were social and financial advantages to being British and not just Jewish. And, you know, Simeon's father was the first Jew ever to receive the freedom of the city of London, which happened in 1830. Wow. So what that meant, of course, was that he was allowed legally to trade within the metropolis. You know, otherwise, prior to this, you might have been a street vendor or something like that. And so the Solomon family really were quite um, socially prestigious. They had lots of money. And other members of the family, these collateral branches, um, some of them were extremely wealthy. And um, again, there there were definitely advantages to assimilation in mid-19th century London, for sure. I know in previous conversations, we've talked about how Solomon referenced not only the advantages, but the problems he had with assimilation in his early work. Could you explain that a little bit for our viewers? Yeah, I mean, there's so many interesting works that he did. And and just to remind viewers that he was really a prodigy in so many ways. You know, these were juvenile works of art, basically, um, that he was doing. And, you know, he, 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 there's a a beautiful painting called uh, The Mother of Moses, which was done in 1860. Um, that shows Mo- Moses, the infant Moses in his mother's arms with his sister looking on. And it's it's an amazing painting where the mother is making this agonizing decision whether she should let her child go. Um, but we know that the backstory is that um, letting Moses go um, meant that he was adopted by a Gentile meant that he benefited from that association, from those laws and traditions, which essentially allowed the adult Moses to deliver the Jews, to deliver his people. So I think it's an interesting painting where Solomon really seems to kind of understand that there are benefits and there are definitely things you give up. You give up your roots, you give up your traditions. And that's what's so beautiful about this painting. The mother is here forced to make this agonizing decision. And and Solomon wants us to sort of understand that. I think that it reflects perhaps how contemporary British Jews were feeling at the time of emancipation. Uh, you know, emancipation of the Jews was completed in 1858. That painting was done in 1860. So a number of these, the, the sort of moment uh, where Solomon is doing these works he, he really does seem to kind of put his finger on, uh, again, what are some of the benefits and what assimilation, what, what individuals might lose through assimilation. They might lose those roots and those um, cherished traditions. That's a really good point, especially when it was so fresh on his mind and he was seeing it right then and there in his own society and then putting it relating it back to a religious work a religious subject 
And, you know, and I, I, I look at it this way, too. You know, Solomon makes his debut at the Royal Academy at the age of 18 in 1858 with a Hebraic subject. And it's almost as if he not only announces, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm this new artist exhibiting at the Royal Academy, but he dares to sort of package himself as a Jewish artist, um, right. to be a specialist in this kind of subject. And ultimately, these paintings from the Old Testament that he specializes in are history paintings. You know, it is his endeavor to work in the highest form of artistic production. But basically, has he has to kind of invent this genre. It doesn't really exist. You know, Jewish history paintings. Solomon is truly a pioneer in, in that area. Not, not a little thing for someone at 18 to take on yeah. either. I mean, we think of how turbulent late teenage, early 20 years are for any person. And then he took on such a major subject. And like you said, he announced it to the world type yeah. thing at the Royal Academy. Like, look yeah. at me. This is who I am. Right. It's really brave. I mean, for a young man to take on. The other thing that I sort of think about those early drawings, in addition to his Jewish roots, Many of the drawings, I think, also seem to reflect his sort of coming to terms with his own sexuality. And some of the drawings, again, where he selects these Old Testament themes, really often have a subtext of a person who is keeping a secret. And what keeping a secret does to the individual. Um, there is a beautiful, beautiful drawing called Nathan Reproving David, that shows Nathan pretty much on his knees and I mean, David pretty much on his knees and Nathan kind of pressing down on his back um, after they've had this conversation about slaughtering the lamb for the traveler. Um, and, you know, Nathan or, you know, um, David proclaims that the rich man should die for his arrogance. Nathan says, David, you are the man. And this whole idea of someone coming to terms with who they are. And that's what is really depicted in the drawing. David just kind of falls to his knees. He he covers his ears with his hands. He can't bear to hear this reality of, of what the secret he's been keeping from himself that finally he internalizes somehow. Um, so there are a number of drawings like that from this early period um, that again, I think are, are really, really powerful and, and so really autobiographical in many ways as well. So skipping a little bit forward in Solomon's life, you mentioned that there was a fascination with Italy and that he traveled there uh, three times in the 1860s. What was his fascination with Italy, do you think? I think that's an interesting question. I think for one thing, there were a lot more rules in London, in Victorian Britain, um, you know, and I think in some ways, the fascination with Italy is a kind of, um, you know, one can sort of lose themselves there where people don't necessarily know who you are and maybe not have quite the same constraints that he might have had back in London. Of course, anyone in who's interested in art wants to go to Italy. So I think that's the other fascination. But, you know, it's so kind of ironic if you study the history of the pre-Raphaelites, you know, they're interested in the art of Raphael, before Raphael, but right. none of them had ever been to Italy, you know? <laughs> and, and that's pretty much 
holds true. You know, they'd seen a couple of paintings at the National Gallery and that kind of thing. They'd seen those engravings by Carla Lazzino, you know, of the frescoes in Pisa in the Campo Santo, but they hadn't really seen Italian painting. So it is an interesting question why he would have been so interested in going to Italy. And again, I think it had a lot to do with that he found a certain freedom and a certain equilibrium there that really appealed to him. There's some interesting stories, of course, about Solomon in Italy. You know, and, and one thing that I think um, your listeners need to know about Solomon is that apparently he was a funny guy. And he was always joking around with people and, you know, making people laugh, you know, and he always had these kind of stale jokes that he told everybody. But there's this <laughs> wonder, there's this sort of wonderful anecdote where he is out in the countryside with Elihu Vader, the American, and they're just sort of roaming around and they stop at some little restaurant and order, order lunch. And the next thing you know, there is this huge crash of lightning and thunder. And Solomon says to Elihu Vader, good heavens, what a lot of pother over a little pork. Apparently they, they are eating pork for lunch. So, <laughs> so, you know, these sort of Jewish jokes that, that kind of come up every so often. And they're, they're so fascinating to, again, to sort of think about Solomon in these places and how he, he sort of conducted his life. But I do think, again, that he was very much interested in Italian art. Um, I recently published an article where I try to argue that it wasn't just painting, it was also sculpture that was of interest to him. And the sculptor, of course, the, the number one Italian sculptor of the 19th century is Canova. And it's really interesting to me when I really go back and look at Solomon's mature work from the 1860s and early 70s, a lot of the figures, a lot of the, even the sort of mood of the work um, seems to have very definite connections to Canova, especially the tomb, the famous Canova tomb at the Frari in Venice. You know, if you go back and look at Solomon's paintings, there's often this kind of feeling of sadness or a kind of melancholy, a kind of yearning. And if you look at those figures in the Canova tomb of someone going to their death, it, it all sort of makes some sense that Solomon, I, I think, is looking at the greatest sculptor of, of the 19th century of, of his own time and really incorporating that into his work. It's interesting, too, we note from some of his colleagues when he was attending the Royal Academy schools in London as a teenager, um, that at the time he was there, apparently, I think one of his friends put it this way, they had indifferent professors. I think that meant <laughs> that they didn't get much attention. And so instead of advancing to the life school or the life classes, which would have been customary, they just had to work from sculpture, from plaster casts and that kind of thing. So I don't think it's impossible at all for Solomon to have, you know, basically been trained that way to, um, you know, for his figures to be very much dependent on the classical tradition and on looking at sculpture for, mm -hmm. for, for poses and you know, these poses that somehow are able to express the state of the soul of, of the individual. I think that's what Solomon's doing. Right. And you think of, I mean, he would have already understood how to translate that, you know, a sculpture into a painting form. 
but with Canova and there's so much emotion and I mean, I don't even know how to explain. I, I love Canova's work, I know. but yeah, you know, like kids, you feel like you could touch it and it, you would feel flesh and just so masterful. And then taking that, you know, obviously if you're already trained working off of sculpture, I mean, that would just be an additional translation, just someone newer to look at. Uh, well, and you know, the, the tricks that painters use when they refer to sculpture is that they often reverse the image. I don't know if they're mm -hmm. just trying to trick us that we wouldn't notice or whatever. But but often that is the case in Solomon's work as well. Some of these figures, um, the famous Sappho and Irina and a garden in Mytilene, uh, these two embracing women are almost word for word from Canova's famous Three Graces. And um and, and then the poses are just reversed. And um, so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I I don't know of anybody else who has come to this conclusion. I may be completely wrong, but I, I really feel strongly that. And the other, the other thing about Canova's work is that there are a number of somewhat androgynous, semi-nude and nude male figures as well. These mm -hmm. genius figures, these protective spirits in these Canova sculptures. And I think that they really set this precedent that Solomon finds as a positive thing, you know, for his own figures that caused him so much grief in the 1860s because they weren't masculine enough, they weren't manly enough. And that Solomon is here kind of giving a alternative, a positive alternative, this, you know, this somewhat androgynous figure um, that I think comes right out of Canova. That's a great observation. And now I'm going to have to go back and look at Canova and <laughs> Simeon's work and, and really, you know, pair them up and seeing the similarities and definitely the mirror image. You see that so many times with so many artists yeah. and it's like, wait, that looks so familiar. Oh, there we go. Flip it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know um, the Canova Museum, which is just outside of Venice, opened I think in 1844 and there was a train that you could go from Venice to Padua and if you got off midway you could take a little this is all in uh, Murray's guidebook to Italy 1866 you could get on a little light calache a little uh, cart and it would take you right to the Canova Museum so What's interesting about the Canova Museum is that it contained all of the plaster casts, all of the, you know, the, the plaster work. So it, it wasn't that you had to be in Italy. You could also see the Canovas that were in other countries as well. Right. Museum. So, you know, so An it's not impossible <laughs> at all for, for him to have really had time um, to, to look at these things and to really think about, um, you know, just what a great source book those right pages. right there in the flesh type thing I mean especially yeah. if you have access like to an artist's entire collection of words right. right and like you said you're not having to travel from location to location to hunt them down I mean right. that's anyone's I mean anyone who right. does research or an artist who's focused on learning about a different artist or yeah, that's their dream is just to walk into one place, have it all at one place. Exactly. So one of my favorite questions I like asking my guests is, what is your favorite pre-Raphaelite work? It doesn't have to be Solomon. It could be anyone. And it could be art or literature. 
Thank I always you. like Thank asking you. that one. <laughs> question. I don't know. I suppose I, oh gosh, I suppose I'd have to go somewhere in the Rossetti world. Um, it might be a Solomon, but, you know, in terms of one of the big spec- spectacular Rossettis, you know, the Beata Beatrix or, or something like that is is pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing about Solomon's work is that it tends to be small. The oil paintings are few and far between. And so there's just not the big, splashy, fabulous, large scale work. I mean, there's right. many in Solomon's <laughs> Earth, um, the, ha- the Habet painting. But, you know, it's it's all a little bit sort of small and more intimate. And in terms and, you know, it, you know, if I if it's going to be my favorite, I suppose it needs to be something kind of big and splashy. But, um, <laughs> you know, so so, you know, I always I always love those big those big Rossetti knockout paintings. And of course, Burn Jones is also one of my favorites. as mm-hmm. well. I always tell people it changes with the season. It yeah. depends who's catching my eye and my mood at that moment <laughs> yeah no it's true it's true there's so many great ones to choose from <laughs> I had a student in my office just yesterday who was trying to pump me for information about melezophilia and um you know it's a great painting let's face it <laughs> right it, it, it's an amazing one and I see so many different versions of it yeah just on a side note uh, we were watching the movie Ophelia oh. and there's this beautiful, you know, this beautiful lake. And I was like, oh, this is straight out of Malay's painting. And she's laying there and the flowers are like, they sure. took so much attention to detail <laughs> of Malay's painting. And I was like, this is straight out of Malay's Ophelia. And my family's like, oh Lord, we can't get away from the pre-Raphaelites. <laughs> so um, I love all the references we still see in today's media yeah. for someone, you know, for a group that isn't always recognized. So uh, thank you so much. I've enjoyed learning about more about Solomon today. And we hope to have more guests like you or you return to, te- you know, <laughs> help us learn more about what we're missing out on and about the pre-Raphaelites. Well, and, you know, I think, um, just to conclude here, I think as art historians, we need to think about how much we owe to these artists, you know, in terms of our our careers, our life filled with art. We don't have to make anything, right? As an art historian, right. <laughs> we get to live these beautiful lives of art. And ultimately, it's because of this person maybe 100 years ago that didn't know us. We don't really know them either. Um, but somehow or other, they have changed our lives in profound ways. And I think we need to think about that. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more on that. For those who listen to us on your different podcast media, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, please make sure you like or rate us. We really appreciate it. And if you don't have a podcast player, you can always check out the podcast on our website, the Pre-Raphaelite Society website. Thank you again for listening, and we hope be bringing you more information soon. Thank you.